Porik Fogarty is an ecologist and environmental scientist who was chairman of the Irish Wildlife Trust from 2009 to 2013, editor of Irish Wildlife Magazine from 2009 to 17, and currently acts as their campaign officer. He's also the author of Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, published in 17. Today, we got into a chat with him about the state of the nation in Ireland, the EU's new nature restoration law, marine protected zones, what's exciting about some new policies and movements that he is kind of engaged with, and a look at COP15, the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, CBD. And while Ireland and the world may be in a catastrophic state biodiversity-wise, we talk about the vision for bringing nature in all its glory back into our lives by changing mindsets and actions. And now Porik is at this a while and his knowledge and his passion for nature, it's an absolute pleasure to listen to. So a massive thank you to him for his time in joining us to chat with us today. And of course, if you're motivated by any of these topics and you'd like to find out more, then head out to the Irish Wildlife Trust website. It's iwt.ie. Or for some nice listening after you've finished with this, well, why not check out their own podcast, which is called Shaping New Mountains. But for now, you are listening to the Neighbour Food Podcast. And here's our guest today, Porik Fogarty. Uh, so I'm uh, Porik uh, Fogarty. I'm the campaign officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust. Um, the Irish Wildlife Trust is an organization that's been on the go since 1979. It was set up by some people who were pretty famous back in the day. Uh, Eamon de Butler, for instance, and Gareth van Gelden were among our founders. They were they were very high profile environmentalists in Ireland back in the 1980s. Uh, and I suppose we see our purpose in life as uh, highlighting the biodiversity crisis. I mean, it's interesting to look back at, you know, how we started off. We were talking about save the whale and you know there was a lot of farming actually uh, around that time because agricultural intensification was becoming quite a thing but um but we weren't using terms like climate change or, or biodiversity loss or biodiversity crisis but uh, but these days that's pretty much all we talk about mm. and so um a lot of the work that we do today is around either trying to raise awareness about uh, biodiversity issues through, let's say, our social media work or the magazine we produce, uh, and also um, campaigning on particular policy issues around land use and sea use that would be the main drivers of uh, biodiversity loss in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Um, so when you're talking about uh, the thing that caught me there was, was the whales in the 80s. Is it that to kind of get these things to catch in people's minds, there tends to be a crisis that we all seem to gather into in a moment. Obviously, we hear about oil spills and different things like that. And I remember in current time hearing about things like that. What would you say the crisis is at the moment? Yeah, it's very interesting because, I mean, I would say, you know, in certainly in the Western world, the environmental crisis came into its own Oh, in, in the 1970s, you know, that, that long ago. And... Uh, a lot of environmental campaigning work, especially in those early days, were around specific issues. So at that time, they were trying to get an end to commercial whaling, uh, which was ultimately successful. And, you know, we have examples in Ireland uh, from other organizations, not necessarily our own, around, you know, let's say, stopping particular projects that were, you know, uh, there was, let's say, the, the, the N11 road that was going through the Glen of the Downs ancient forest. But uh, things have moved on a lot. And in fact, I mean, we we are campaigning now on kind of full spectrum systemic transformation. I mean, people wonder why this stuff is hard. I mean, basically, we're trying to change everything. We're not we're not trying to move a road anymore. Mm. We're trying to uh, change our food system. We're trying to change our entire land use. We're trying to change our entire ethic towards uh, nature and our our relationship with the natural world um and i suppose that is a reflection i suppose in, in a one way about how bad it's got uh in terms of reaching the climate and biodiversity crisis that we're in uh it's also a reflection maybe on how in many ways the environmental movement hasn't succeeded 
in you know in meeting its its broader goals, uh, but also it's a reflection of how I think many in our movement now are recognizing that these are intersectional issues. You can't you you know you can't just save one species uh, or reduce greenhouse gases all by their own. We have to look at these things uh, in the round and look at how biodiversity climate change, food security, uh, poverty even, uh, general inequalities are all interconnected and intertied. And so in one way that, that makes our job very much harder because we're trying to do so much more. But on the other hand, it does give us an opportunity to address all of these crises uh, at the same time. And of course, it points to the need for activists like myself to be working uh, you know, way beyond our, our own little bubble about trying to save particular species and, and working with people in, who are active in, in other social and environmental areas. I'd imagine it, it kind of gathers the troops a small bit as well in terms of the amount of people who might be focusing in and working on something when you open it up a little bit more like that. You used the word activist a second ago. You would see yourself as a, an, an activist for biodiversity, uh, for nature and ecology. And is there a community of activists around the world that are constantly in communication with each other? Um, I, I maybe wouldn't go that far. Um, certainly there are groups of activists in Ireland that are in communication with each other, maybe to a lesser degree across Europe, because a lot of our issues are in relation to policies that have originated in the European Union. Uh, globally, uh, I, I'm not sure there would be that kind of a network, but but certainly one thing I have seen in my time since I started working in this area is the rise of social media. And I mean, for, for us, that has been a hugely positive uh, development in terms of being able to communicate and being able to uh, uh, link in with other activists um, uh, across geographical boundaries. I mean, I know social media gets uh, gets a bit of a, a bad rap a lot of the time, but, but from our perspective, it has been enormously possible. I don't understand how we could do our job, to be honest, without uh, having social media um, uh, available to us. Brilliant. Um, it's really obvious your kind of focus and dedication into the different things you're working on. Do you remember the moment when you decided that this was going to be the career path that you went on? <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, there, there was a time, as a, I mean, as a child, I was, um, I was mad about nature and I grew up, uh, very close to the Phoenix park and I still live close to the Phoenix park. And that was kind of my playground where, you know, I, 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 I had a lot of contact with, you know, just generally climbing trees and all the rest of it later in life. Then I didn't go, I didn't study uh, zoology or ecology in college. I studied, um, analytical science and went to work for the pharmaceutical industry uh, but I wasn't particularly happy there and I do remember being out on a on a fishing trip with my colleagues and uh, there was an unusual bird that flew past and everyone was wondering what that bird was and I was uh, really disappointed with myself that I didn't know what the bird was because my my 10 year old self would have known what the bird was. Uh, and I remember going back and I didn't even have like a bird book in my house that I that I could refer to. So I went out and bought one. And I think that was the start of the journey for me uh, to come back to, uh, you know, where my real passions were. And that's what got me involved in the Irish Wildlife Trust uh, and ultimately what, what made me become a, a professional ecologist. Um, and also, I mean, to say that, you know, to, with the point that I became an activist, I'm not sure where I kind of crossed that threshold, but certainly, and it's maybe relative to uh, your audience here, I remember where I was the day I first saw the ad for Origin Green uh, in 2013, because I nearly fell off the chair. I remember looking at it and going, oh my God, I mean, everything we have done has been in vain because we're just being completely steamrolled here by a greenwashing machine mm. that is quite happy to ignore the facts that we see on the ground in terms of the devastation around our landscape and our water quality and, and what's happening to biodiversity, and then just create a new story and use that to sell stuff. Um, so I think that was the point where I thought, jeepers, we really have to, we really have to up our game here. We really have to be an awful lot more vocal and we have to be we have to be activists in the real sense of the word in terms of 
really being active, being out, speaking up, speaking out, um, and uh, and trying to change things. So maybe that that is a, a summary of the tra- trajectory I have taken over the last uh, maybe twenty years. And when you say like Ireland is in a catastrophic state of biodiversity, like how bad is it really? Like has it gone downhill in the last twenty years? Do you think? I think it has gone downhill in the last four hundred years. And uh, and I think that's maybe why it's um, it's been hard to communicate to people just how how bad it, it is. Mm. I mean, if you look at uh, what's happening in the Amazon today, I mean, you can clearly see it's horrific uh, that you know deforestation uh, is happening on such a scale to turn into pasture lands for cattle. But I mean, that's exactly what we've done here in Ireland. Uh, we've just done it over a much longer time period. Mm. Now, uh, certainly farming in Ireland, uh, you know, has, I mean, today we'd call it nature friendly, but, you know, a hundred years ago, we weren't using terms like that, but there were no chemicals involved. It mm. was pretty low intensity and it certainly allowed for a lot of biodiversity to coexist and you know it didn't necessarily affect our water systems or you know the types of fishing we were doing at the time it was you know pretty confined to close to shore but but certainly in the last 50 years and uh, so that i'd say the post-war period particularly since we joined the european union the level of subsidies the level of technology the level of um, availability of uh you know chemicals uh fertilizers all that kind of stuff has literally gone through the roof mm. and so you might have said you know the ireland of you know 1920 was deforested yes uh but our seas were fairly intact our bogs were intact we had clean water you know away from the cities uh none of those things are true today uh we have you know comprehensively industrially uh terraformed the land around us and the sea around us uh, in a way that is is kind of hard to imagine but but that's but that's you know that is objectively true um and and so a part of my job as as an activist and our job in the irish wildlife trust is try to communicate to people uh the scale of what has happened but without saying lads it's just it's completely bunched we may as well just go home we have to be able to say well you know we haven't destroyed everything we do have curlews that are still out there we still have angel sharks we still have freshwater pearl mussels but they're not going to be around for much longer uh if we continue on the path that we're going so we do have to change paths so so yes i mean our message is you know uh kind of it's a, it's an unvarnished uh negative message in the one hand but also we've worked very hard to articulate the solutions that we think uh, we can implement and should be implementing but are not implementing mm. um and that's that i guess is uh the, the challenge uh we face you mentioned there um about the greenwashing of origin green <clears throat> and that's something that i think that everybody can uh, relate to seeing now the way a lot of corporations are adopting green policies and different types of marketing campaigns to position themselves in a way where they're uh, tying in towards um, climate um, change awareness, let's let's say. How, how big a part do you think that that will play in the next um, several decades moving forward? as corporations will continue to try and win over some kudos with the public while in fact continuing to damage? Do you think that it'll start to play a a potentially positive role or will continue to play a negative role? Well, I mean, greenwashing, I think, can only be negative because, you know, by definition, it's uh, it's basically making claims that aren't true. Um, I think certainly in the early days uh i mean greenwashing is nothing new but you know particularly around orange and green and board beer uh which was such a turning point in ireland um people kind of thought that greenwashing was you know it was kind of innocent enough that it was you know it was taking what a lot of people thought about ireland anyway and was just projecting it onto an advertising campaign but actually greenwashing is much more sinister than that um because it uh it's a diversionary tactic and it's basically throwing a smoke screen over 
what is really happening. I mean, we knew when Irish Green was lost, we, or it was launched rather, we knew we had all the information about the deterioration of our water quality, about uh, the effects of, uh, of, of farming systems on Ireland. And yes, they designed this campaign to try and divert attention from that. And of course, what have we seen in the, the 10 years that we've had Origin Green, increasing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture, increasing water pollution from agriculture, drastic declines in pollinators, drastic declines in farmland birds, loss of hedgerows, all of these things continued uh, overfishing in our sea. Um, uh, without the policy response to address that, because basically, it, you know, it, it it was successful. It duped everybody into believing that um, uh, our agriculture system is green and, and, and nature friendly. And so we don't need to do anything. And so nothing was done. Uh, and in that time, things have deteriorated. Um, so I think the game is up actually for all of those things because it's very hard. And I mean, on a global scale, we see how the fossil fuel industry mm. uh, deliberately use greenwashing tactics to try and avoid, uh, you know, taking meaningful action to address the pollution. I don't think there's anywhere to hide uh, anymore from that. I think it's largely accepted, but we still see it happening. Uh, we still see our Minister for Agriculture, for instance, Charlie McConnello, going around the world selling Ireland as working for nature. This was written on the uh, podium that uh, on the lectern that he was using when he was on a trade mission to the Far East uh, last year. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I think this is it's a particularly pernicious aspect of the times that, that, that we live in. And I think the only option to get around it is uh, regulating companies. Ultimately, the you know, our governments would love to think that the private sector will you know, we can use market mechanisms in order to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and water pollution and save habitats. But that's really not going to happen. Uh, and so we need our politicians to get much more involved in regulating uh, what happens. And we see that actually it's very it's very current debate because this week in the European Union, they are debating whether uh, dairy farms should be regulated Okay. you know, in the way that we regulate polluting factories. Uh, and I think we should. They should be licensed. They should have emission limit values on licenses and they should be inspected as, you know, we would uh, poultry factories and pig factories and so on. Um, but there's huge resistance to that. And I see that the language being used around it is because the family farms are different to factories. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is kind of just perpetuating a myth that, you know, we still have uh, you know, farming is still like populated by characters from children's books uh, and sure it's all harmful and benign and, uh, you know, is, is maintaining a bucolic idol. Whereas in fact, you know, dairying today is a major polluter. It's a much, it's a much more significant polluter than our pharmaceutical industry uh, by, by quite a, a, a shot actually. Um, and yet we still want to believe that it's just kind of farmer, farmer Brown leaning against his pitchfork with, uh, you know, animals that talk to each other out in the paddocks. So, um, so that's why the greenwashing and the, the, the marketing around all of this and the language you use is so important in generating an environment that allows us to avoid actually uh, dealing with our environmental problems. So on that um, of organization <clears throat> regulation, um, COP15, we mentioned this before we started the podcast, you you were there. It was the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties in Montreal, Canada, in December, just gone. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So people uh, are, you know, understandably confused with all these COPs and the, and the numbers. So um, for those of, of, of anyone listening of a certain age, you might remember in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, uh, it was the, the World Earth Summit was held and actually it was the biggest summit of world leaders ever held, ever. Uh, and I think it still holds that record. Um, and at that summit in 1992, it was agreed that there would be three global treaties uh, well, sorry, there weren't treaties, there were conventions. One was the Framework Convention on Climate Change. One was the Convention on Desertification. And the third was the Convention on Biological Diversities. And on um, Biological Diversity, the CBD. 
And out of each of these conventions came what are called Conference of Parties or COPs. And so we have uh, COP27 was the most recent one on climate that was held in Egypt. It just means it was the 27th meeting uh, for that convention. And we also have these parallel ones on desertification. And the one that happened in Canada last December was on biodiversity on the Convention on Biological Diversity. And it was the 15th one, hence COP15. Now, the reason why this particular one was so important was because uh, what the, the goal of the meeting was to develop what they call a, a framework uh, for biodiversity. Uh, now, in, in, in kind of layman's terms, uh, people who have been following the climate uh, debate will be familiar with the Paris Agreement, uh, which came about in 2015, which set the limit uh, what they said was that, that they were going to keep global temperatures below two degrees and, and one and a half degrees. Uh, sorry, they said to keep to one and a half degrees and definitely well below two degrees is what is the language they used. And because they had that target, they were able to, uh, politicians were able to develop policies, scientists were able to uh, do you know, research around how could we meet this goal. And we have no equivalent for biodiversity. Um, biodiversity is, uh, is infinitely complex. It's mostly invisible. It's mobile. Uh, it's very difficult to measure. Uh, but nevertheless, we needed a, a, uh, uh, a, a some kind of set of targets that were equivalent to the Paris Agreement so that we could we knew what we were aiming for and uh, we could set policies and research objectives against that. So that that's what uh, the meeting in Canada was designed to do. And it was successful. Um, I mean, the agreement wasn't perfect by any means, but it, it was generally uh, well received in terms of setting a series of goals that uh, we have to meet uh, between now and 2030 and beyond up to 2050 as well. Uh, and an example of one of those goals, the one that got most of the headlines was about protecting 30% of the land and sea uh, by 2030. So basically creating protected areas for nature uh, by, by that date. But also there were some very important uh, goals around reducing the use of pesticides and herbicides, uh, around developing um, uh, sustainable uh, agricultural systems, about using the sea sustainably and so on. Um, so now I think we have, uh, you know, we've, we've got a very good set of policies available to us now with this. It's um, it's called the Kunming Montreal uh, Global Biodiversity Framework, which is a bit more of a mouthful than the Paris Agreement. But anyway, um, <laughs> there they are. Um, our challenge now, of course, is trying to uh, get people to do something about it. Uh, I mean, we've been making these policy agreements and having these meetings now for over 30 years. And, uh, and while it's great to you know, have these uh, you know, available, uh, on the ground, it's not making much of a difference. We're still, we're still losing this battle because we're still losing biodiversity. Greenhouse gases are still going up. Uh, we're still hurtling towards the precipice, really, in terms of ecological collapse. So the challenge now really is to turn all the fine words into actual uh, actions on the ground. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny when you look at like the global scale and you see the kind of impending doom and the kind of catastrophe that's looming. Um, ecological collapse, I felt like I was in a horror movie there. Um, how can individuals make a difference? Like th this is the thing, you know, you kind of think about um, leaders and politicians and, and countries kind of collectively coming together. But for the family and their garden out the back for the people who maybe just grow herbs on their windowsill or whatever. What what is the things that you and I can do to perhaps help make a difference? Well, I mean, I think we can all make. Uh, I think individual action is really important, um, and I think the, the, we're very lucky in Ireland that we we live in a functioning democracy. I mean, I know you wouldn't think that, uh, you know, if, if you're scrolling through Twitter, but you know, compared to other countries, Ireland is is uh, is is a free and, and fair democracy, and we're allowed to criticise our politicians uh, quite openly and protest. Um, and we're quite close to our politicians, so I think we need to get uh, political. And I say this because we we kind of take it for granted, but. Um, you know, places like Colombia and the Philippines, environmental activists, uh, land defenders frequently get murdered 
if you if you live in places like Russia and China, you just don't get to speak out about um, climate and biodiversity in the way we do in Ireland. So we're very fortunate and we're very privileged. And um, and in many ways, it, it, it kind of puts a responsibility on us as well that really we have a duty uh, to speak out. And there's many ways you can do that. I mean, obviously, I'm not expecting everyone to become activists the way uh, I am, but um, we all have a voice within our, our own communities at different levels. Um, we can have those conversations at uh, appropriate levels and they matter. Actually, I think, you know, conversations at, at small community level have, are, are just as important as the conversations we might be having at you know, national policy levels. So people can get involved in those conversations. I mean, of course, you can rewild your garden and you can stop flying and stop eating meat and do all of those things. Uh, and they're also important um, uh, uh, to do as well. But I think more important is probably the conversations we're having uh, you know, in our, in our uh, surroundings. And, uh, and definitely, you know, if we want to see the changes uh, that, that, that I think need to happen, we can't do it without uh, concerted political uh, action. And at the moment, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I, I can see there is movement at a political level, but I mean, it's so, it's so slow mm. and it's so inadequate. Painstaking. Uh, that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I do notice the uh, Citizens Assembly on Biodiversity Laws, which has been taking place since last, last uh, April, and they're going to report quite soon. And, and I think that's really positive as well, because it shows that I think a lot of people are very keen to see these changes happening. But uh, politics is really, really hard. Uh, I don't want to deny it. But, you know, the more people speaking out about it, the easier it gets. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Cool. Will we maybe move on and have a chat about this particular um, law? And I think it's important to point out that it's being referred to as a law, which is the Nature Restoration Law. Can you give us a little bit of a, a description of what that law is meant to be or when it maybe comes into place? So this is very uh, interesting development from the European Union. And, um, uh, you know, anybody who's following, you know, this area will probably be asking why do we need another law because uh, we have oh about 40 years of environmental law that has accumulated in Ireland and um, a lot of it is just not implemented you know so uh, why do we need another law but actually the European Union has decided that um, member states the individual countries uh, uh, are not to be trusted to, um, to, to meet environmental objectives and so what they've proposed is, a, is a, a new nature restoration law. It's the biggest new uh, legislative initiative from the European Union when it comes to biodiversity uh, since the Habitats Directive uh, over 30 years ago. So the difference between a directive and a, and a law, the directive at the time was basically, you know, putting it up to the governments, to individual governments to create laws, but, you know, that would... Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the word, transpose the directive, whereas this is a law straight from the European Union. And what it's going to do is it's going to set legally binding targets for the restoration of habitats and species uh, across land and sea. So it's really, it's, I think it's quite ambitious uh, in what it's trying to do. Um, it will have very well-defined targets around uh, restoring peatlands, uh, restoring farmland pollinators, uh, restoring areas of marine habitats, restoring forests, even restoring um, tree cover in our towns and cities. Uh, so I think it's very positive. It's going to place a, a, um, a, 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 an onus on governments to come up with a national restoration plan. And government, once it's passed, which we hope will happen maybe late this year, early next year, governments will have two years to come up with a national restoration plan um, uh, in order to implement all of these things. So, I mean, I think, you know, when you, when you look across all the different things that are happening at the moment, whether that's the, you know, the Citizens Assembly, our new Climate Act, uh, 
requirements on uh, our farming system to reduce its ecological footprint, whether that's in water quality and the Water Framework Directive, the Nitrates Action Plan. There's quite a lot of policy instruments now that are all pointing in the right direction. So, I mean, what I hope is that the government, instead of doing what it normally does and saying, oh, here comes Brussels again, waving a stick, um, you know, we better, you know, cover our faces, uh, saying to ourselves, look, this is this is something that we really need to do. Um, we really need to do it for uh, food security, for climate resilience, for making our country a healthier place for people, even at an individual level, so that people can have healthier environments, uh, better air quality, better water quality, access to nature. This is something we should get behind. And I think it's something that really could be like a Marshall plan for rural Ireland. You know, it could see a lot of money coming to rural Ireland for the restoration of, of habitats, new jobs, uh, new opportunities. Um, but it won't happen if the attitude to it is the same as it has been for the last 40 years, you know, basically that, oh, this is more negativity. We'll do what we want with our land and we'll tell Brussels to go and get stuffed. I think we have to change the narrative around how we talk about these things. But uh, but on the face of it at the moment, you know, I think it is a, it is a wonderful opportunity. So like 20 percent of land. So that's that's 20 percent of of Irish soil. Is that correct? So there are different targets. Um, the, the, there will be uh, numerical targets around the protection of peatlands, for instance. It won't necessarily mean 20% of Ireland's entire land space, as far as I can tell. It's looking at, say, for instance, um, uh, our oak forests and saying we need to restore 30% of our oak forests. So what's the area of, of oak forests at the moment and how can we increase that by 30%? Uh, we also need to improve the condition of the areas that already exist. So for instance, our oak forests at the moment are in a dreadful condition. We need to improve the condition. So it's not just about increasing the area of them. And those areas will be different uh, depending on the habitats that are, that are, um, that are involved. Under the, uh, the COP15 agreement that we were talking about a moment ago, there is, um, I mentioned that there was a target to protect 30% of our land and sea by 2030. The European Union has signed up to that, and so there's a kind of an EU-wide target. The Irish government has signed up to protecting 30% of our sea by 2030, but we haven't signed up to protecting 30% of our land. And that is something that I think uh, we should be doing uh, because I think it would be an enormous opportunity. I think communities around the country would love to have a nature reserve within walking or cycling distance and uh, and we'd love to have big areas as well that are you know um, there for nature and for for biodiversity um uh, so i'd love i'd love to see us uh, striving towards those kinds of targets but uh, but we're not there yet mm. i assume that private land has to play a part in this percentage in the ideal vision for this law would that be correct so i'm a land owner i have several hectares and you know, part of it is forestry and part of it is kind of fallow and, and some of it is farming. Would, would I be applying to allow percentages of my land be included in this particular target? And then the idea would be that I would receive some funding to kind of both maintain or, as you said, improve these particular areas and kind of designate them and commit to, to, to maintaining them as, as that. Would that be correct? Yeah, that would that would be that would be correct. Um, I mean, most of Ireland is privately owned. Um, I don't have an accurate figure for you, but I imagine the state probably owns, you know, no more than ten percent of the country. Quilch is the biggest landowner in Ireland. It owns about seven percent. Bordenamone owns a chunk. Maybe local authorities own a chunk, uh, but most of it is privately owned. So um, we're going to have to make a, a, a developer system. Uh, whereby this works for it works for land the private landowners, um, and it means we're going to have to uh, develop uh, a system. I think that it gives farmers uh, options about what they want to do with their land. Uh, so at the moment, we have a system under the Common Agricultural Policy where we give farmers money for f producing food. Now, they say that, uh, you know, it's all, you know, 
a lot of the cap money is for environment as, as well but actually it's not you know a lot of it is a lot of it is greenwashing but um if we were to genuinely give yeah it is yeah yeah and it has been successful in doing that but uh but the environment has paid a, a very heavy price for that um but uh but i think at the moment if you're a farmer uh if you don't want to produce food um and there are farmers out there who own land and they may say i just want to rewild my land and i want to turn it into a forest or let it be a, a swamp or let it be a bog um there's no options there for you at the moment uh for you to be rewarded for providing those what, what are termed ecosystem services so we need to move to a system where farmers are actively encouraged uh to to helping to meet these goals but also i would say that even though the state only owns a small portion of the land um the state can lead by example the state could show farmers that as a nation we're serious about meeting these targets by instructing state uh, landowners like Quidditch and Bordemona to be the first movers because at the moment uh, landowners are very skeptical they uh, don't trust uh, the idea of designations they see the, and, and I, I have to agree with them because they were shafted uh, in, in the early 2000s when it came to land designations they were basically had, had maps thrown at them and then they were they were left to fend for themselves so I think if we if we're going to win landowners and farmers over uh, the state has to take the lead on it and show that it's serious by 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 leading with, uh, with public land. I mean, yeah, on paper it just sounds brilliant. It, I was going to say it's it's actually very exciting the potential of it, and also we haven't mentioned the sea, but like you know marine reserves as well. I read an article that there was an area. Um, I think it was just today or or yesterday, um, and the South Kerry coast has been a, a hope spot. Was that is that correct, Podrick? Yeah, so uh, it's quite an exciting time. I mean, on the one hand, Ireland has been dreadful at protecting the sea. We have one of the lowest areas of protected area at sea of any country, uh, any maritime country. Uh, but the government has committed to protecting 30% uh, by 2030. And uh, we see uh, just before Christmas, the government uh, issued new legislation which if it's passed this year will allow the government to create, you know, big marine protected areas. Mm. Uh, and so this is, this is very exciting because uh, it'll allow, it allow us to protect the sea in a way that hasn't been, mm. uh, hasn't been possible before. He's sorry to drop it. They, they cut the fishing days as well, just before Christmas. Sorry, it wasn't this year. Sorry. It was the year before. So they cut the fishing fleet. Uh, yeah. They bought out uh, fishermen uh this was to do with brexit really it wasn't mm. it wasn't unfortunately it wasn't conservation related but yes our fishing fleet has got smaller um because of brexit there's uh there simply isn't uh the 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 they, they got the fishermen got a bad deal over brexit but anyway that's kind of a different story but um the the announcement yesterday was from a a, a global organization called mission blue which is headed by um the, uh, the the wonderful Sylvia Earle, who uh, is an absolute uh, champion of, of marine protection. Uh, she's kind of like a David Attenborough under the sea. <laughs> and um, she this is her organization. And they, they identify these areas around the world that are of very special biodiversity importance. So, I mean, it doesn't bring any extra protection for the area, but it does bring uh, a bit of... Um, Awareness. emphasis onto yeah. some of the really important biodiversity we have in our sea and that's it because we do have amazing biodiversity here in cork and Kerry. like when you think of all the basking sharks that come in at early in the year and yeah it's, it's quite it's quite amazing actually to see all the wildlife there whales and everything so that's really cool well i mean we do have um productive waters i mean uh, uh cold water is actually quite quite good for fish a lot of fish like the water to be cold uh, off the continental shelf you get what's called an upwelling basically nutrients as you say the currents kind of drive nutrients to the surface that drives uh, plankton which the fish feed on and which then the whales and the dolphins feed on um so i mean uh, uh naturally i think our waters are quite rich but i mean they've been chronically overfished mm, uh, that's the problem and yeah. uh what 
Yeah, and I, th I think it's one of one of the things that we really have to get a, a get a handle on that um, at the moment there's nowhere where fishing is not allowed, mm. and there's very poor uh, regulations put on our fishing activity, and it's not just super trawlers and big boats; it's even small boats and and all kinds of activities. It's just simply not regulated. So, I mean, I I hope I, I know it's a hard sell, but I do think marine protected areas could be really good for small uh fishermen and women around the coast and coastal communities because if you protect an area of the sea from fishing that means you get more fish mm. if yep. you have more fish then you know you get fish that will leave the boundary of the mpa which then create uh, uh, a reliable uh source of of fish and seafood for um people in small boats who want to uh, want to catch the fish um so uh, I hope we can we, we can we can do that, uh, but uh, you know I, I, I don't know yet. Uh, but but certainly one of the one of the ideas that we're talking about in this uh, this legislation is what's called strictly protected areas. So it won't mean that all the marine protected areas are strictly protected, but at least we hope ten percent of them will be areas where no fishing or no extractive activities of any kind are allowed. So you do get full recovery of marine life in those areas. Beautiful. Brilliant. So just to, to conclude on the on the nature restoration law, because we spoke a lot about what's involved and everything, but in terms of the, the, the timelines of it, I don't know if we actually explained those. So is this a conversation right now? Has this put in place? Uh, when are the when are the deadlines, let's say? Well, I mean, um, it's 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 more than just a conversation. It is a proposal from the European Commission, which has brought, which has published it since last uh, June. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I can follow the machinations of the European Union, but basically, it has to go to the Parliament and it has to be agreed by the ministers from each of the countries. Now, at the moment, Sweden uh, is the president uh, of the European Council. Uh, and Sweden is not that uh, in favor of of, uh, of the nature restoration law. Uh, but we're hoping that the country that comes after it is going to be Spain towards the end of the year. They seem to be much more in favor of it. So we think that we, we, we would hope to see it becoming law by the end of this year under the Spanish uh, presidency. Uh, all going well. It might drift into next year, but but certainly within the next 12 months or so. Okay, and then I think I, I read somewhere that there would be kind of a two-year um, proposal timeline for each country to put together their proposed percentages of land and sea. Yeah, you have two years then to produce a restoration plan. But, I mean, a lot of these targets are for 2030, so you can imagine if it's 2024 when this becomes law, it'll then be 2026 before we see restoration plans. You know, it really doesn't leave much time then to actually do the work on the ground. Um so, I mean, th this is stuff that we know we have to do. You know, we don't really need to be waiting for this law to know that we need to restore our peatlands and that we need to, you know, uh, reverse the loss of pollinators and all these kinds of things. So, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be waiting for plans to be produced to be getting on with this stuff. Can you maybe let us know what it is at the moment that you're particularly interested in maybe what you're working on and something that you find is particularly exciting at the moment. So, um, I mean, we, we have been working a lot on the marine area that we've just been, been uh, speaking about. Uh, of course, the other side of, uh, you know, it'd be great if we got these marine protected areas up and running, but we also need to uh, uh, manage properly what we do in the other 70%. And, and that's actually something that came across uh, quite uh, prominently in the COP15 talk that, you know, even if we have these beautiful areas that are protected for nature, we have to, we have to do things differently in the other areas. So this is really important for agriculture uh, and other types of land use in Ireland. Um, I think uh, at the moment we are in the middle of, well, I wouldn't say we're in the middle, we're kind of at the end stages of developing a new policy for forests in Ireland, which I think is potentially quite exciting because I think a lot of people want to see more forests in Ireland. Um, 
we were a forest people. We were covered, uh, 80% of our land was covered in beautiful, you know, native forest at one point in time. That figure is down to about 1% now. So I think um, we have an opportunity in the coming years to try and uh, reverse that. And uh, and I think there's a lot, there's a big appetite for that. I think people are kind of rediscovering this kind of wild side to our heritage and our land uh, that, that maybe is there, you know, that maybe there, we could see uh, big areas of native woodland with, you know, wolves and lynx in them and mm. wild animals in them once again. And I think that is, uh, that is quite exciting. Um, that's coming down the track. I mean, at, 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 at this moment in time, I'm not, I'm having a pessimistic week about it, but you know, on a normal week, I could also be optimistic because there's a lot of money going into this. I see the demand for it. Uh, but I'm also kind of at the coal face of the political resistance to it, mm. which is incredibly frustrating. But um, but I think if we can get over that, I think we could we could really do something quite quite amazing. I mean, I also see the huge uh, shift that's happening among farmers, uh, among many farmers that are seeing what's happening and thinking about you know how how can we produce food. Uh, in a way that is not using all of these chemicals that is actually protecting water and protecting biodiversity. And I think that has, that's been a really positive movement. I look at the likes of uh, the Farming for Nature initiative um, that is uh, also associated, I think, with the pollinator plan uh, and, you know, some of these uh, farming programs like in the Burren um, that are really bringing together farmers uh, who maybe want to get back to a different type of farming, a different way of, of, of controlling their land, having more say that isn't just about filling in forms and, and keeping inspectors happy, but that is about a more genuine um, and thoughtful relationship with the land. And, and that's, I, I see that, that we're kind of, kind of into the area of ethics almost uh, about how, how we see our relationship with nature. But I see that shifting actually at the moment. And I think that's a hugely positive uh, development. That's great. Explosion in the prices of fertilizers. It, it's no longer just an ethical question. It's becoming an economical one as well. There's actually evidence being shown that commercial farming is significantly less profitable than alternative forms of farming in certain kind of areas. And I think that's shifting farmers thought processes as well to explore a little bit more like Julian, do you remember we chatted to a farmer in um, Kevin in, in Limerick. And he was talking <coughs> Newly Furban Farm. Newly Furban Farm. And he was talking about a type of fermentation where he would basically forage. Um, Korean natural farming was his it's method. Korean natural farming is, is the name of the principles, but he would, he would go into forests and he would forage different types of kind of um, <clears throat> plants and herbs and things within the forest, ferment those to create his own versions of, of kind of fertilizers and treatments for his soil. And, and he was saying, you know, not only am I making a more leaning towards organic or, or a nicer product or different types of things like this, he was also massively raising the productivity of his crops as well. So he was saying like a commercial tomato, and these figures aren't right, I can't remember now, but it was something like a commercial tomato vine will do like 14 uh, 14 vines on, on the plant and he was getting like 22 or something with the with these treatments so so he was trying to make the point that like what I'm doing is treating the soil what I'm doing is working for the environment what I'm also doing is actually getting way more out of my plants and selling way more vegetables you know so I think those types of conversations are having are happening among smaller farmers and the bigger farmers are taking taking note of it I would imagine mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, and we see many of these other initiatives like regenerative farming and, and, uh, and all these other uh, uh, initiatives that are based on you know, recuperating soil health. Uh, I mean, I think we also have to recognize that uh, the, the food system we have at the moment uh, really has, has not promoted uh, uh, rural economies, really. I mean, uh, we see, for instance, you know, you know, sheep farming on hills. Uh, you know, it fails every single test. It's it's not economically viable. It's ecologically ruinous, uh, uh, and uh, and 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 we we have to come up with alternatives. So, 
uh, I think if if the you know the, the the farmer you were talking about and and all of those others, I mean they have they have made this shift despite government policy, despite you know what they're being told by the likes of Chagas. Um, they basically decided we're we're going to just do it our own way. So could you imagine if we had? Uh, a department of agriculture in Chagas actually encouraging these things, you know, mm. developing the research uh, and the markets for a much greater diversity of products, um, uh, much more organic products, uh, you know, uh, and also promoting other types of land uses. You know, we have we have land that you know is not suitable for farming at all. Uh, and, and that, that that we do need a, a a very significant program of of rewilding. I think I think many landowners are ready for that, but the supports at the moment uh, just aren't in place for them. Well, where can people find out more about what you're doing, what the Irish Wildlife Trust are doing, and um, how can they get the information to make active steps in their own lives? Yeah, so uh, I think we have a pretty decent online presence. You can go to our website, which is iwt.ie. Uh, you'll also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we're quite active on social media. So we also have branches around the country. Uh, we have events to bring people out uh, in person uh, to, you know, nice nature experiences. So, you know, uh, so definitely go on to the website and see what's happening in your area and, uh, and I think the most important thing that I think we can urge people to do is to get engaged. Uh, you know, only the individual knows, you know, to, to what extent they can devote their time and energy to this issue. But the more people we have who are, you know, engaged in it, who are reading about it, who are having conversations about it, uh, the, 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 the quicker we will get to um, taking the, the, the kind of steps that, that we're trying to promote. Lovely. Thank you very much, Parik. It was a pleasure talking to you. You laid it all out there bare for us. Thank um, you, Rory.